Well, let me invite you to open up to the book of James. Uh, We are in a sermon series on the book of James. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and open it up with us. Um, The book of James begins in these black hardbacks on page 10, 11, I believe. Um, We are in our second week of James that we just started, which means I'm still really excited about it. In about a year and a half, I'll be a little less enthusiastic, okay? But we just got started, and so I'm pumped up about James. James, if you remember, is a brother of Jesus. And so the book of James, one of the earliest, if not the earliest books in our New Testament, is a Jesus-saturated book. Um, It has lots of things about it that I love. One of the things that I love about James, and we'll see it this morning, is that James is a book for people who are visual learners. Um, And that might sound weird because it's a text, okay, so you have to read it. But if you read it and if you pay attention, it gives you lots of images. It gives you lots of word images, metaphors, and similes. Uh, I've taught in high school and I've taught in college, and and, and in both contexts I've taught through the book of James, and I have an assignment. So I say, get out a blank sheet of paper and then open up to the book of James, and I want you to, for the rest of the class, list out as many similes and metaphors as you can find in the book of James. And so then I spend the rest of the class explaining what a simile or metaphor is. And the next class period, they do it, okay? And yeah, the education system has failed us all horribly. Um, we, you, you, if you were to go through James, uh, you almost can't tell where certain similes and metaphors and, and word pictures and word images begin and end. And so he paints a very colorful book for us. Um, as well, one of my favorite things about the book of James is that it is saturated with allusions to Jesus' teachings. Uh, and so it is very much the kind of thing that you would hear in the Gospels out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, James is urging his readers to live out a life um, worthy of the kingdom that Jesus called people to. Uh, And so as we go through James, particularly in this passage this morning, we'll see both of those things, lots of metaphors and similes and word images, and tons of, if you're familiar with it, um, allusions to some of Jesus' teachings, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and its counterpart in Luke, Luke chapter 6. So last week we looked at verse 2 through 4. This week we'll look at verse 5 through 18, but we'll start reading in verse 2 again since it's a complete unit so we can get the context, okay? So if you'll read with me, James chapter 1, verse 2. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways." And let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. And so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth the dead. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so we saw last week in this, this opening, James' message to his readers is that um, when you are, are going through trials, okay, hardships in your life, he says trials of various kinds. Um, we know he's writing to people who've been kicked out of their hometown and they're all over the world in places where they don't have jobs, where they're social outcasts. They're probably experiencing economic injustice, social injustice. Um, They have all kinds of problems in their lives. James writes to us as well. He says, when you count um, various trials that you encounter in your life, all kinds of different hardships that come your way, he says, count it joy. And he says, count it all joy. Not because bad things are actually good, but he says, because of what those trials will produce in you if you're a follower of Christ. If you don't look at the trial, but look through the trial, he says what you'll see is a moral formation happening, a perseverance starting to grow within a follower of Christ that will lead to someone, he says, who is perfect, who's mature, who's complete, who lacks nothing, I said last week that evil often overplays its hand when it comes to Christians. This is true, this, this idea that if we persevere through hardships, we become very strong people who, who really can put up with anything in almost every aspect of our life, um, whether it's work or uh, relationships. Once you've been through something um, really tough or once you've done something for years and you've kind of seen every hurdle and obstacle can be thrown your way and you've gone through it all and you've continued and you've persevered, you're going to be this kind of really steely, um, resolved person who's going to be really hard to move and shake and surprise or to toss around like the wind, as James says. And so evil likes to often overplay its hand, like last week with all the tragedies in our nation. Hard things come into our life whether it's tragedies, whether it's relationship problems, whether it's the loss of a job, various trials we encounter. And with those trials, we are tempted to stop following Christ. But the promise in James is that if we persevere, what will happen is at the end of the day, we will be made into the kind of person who can face almost anything without any fear, without any, without any sort of um, regret. We, we will be made into this kind of um, mature follower of Christ. Um, now, he then talks about wisdom, and then talks about wealth and poverty, and then talks about 
um, temptation, and then talks about God. And the, the question when people read through James is, why does he talk about the things that he talks about in the order that he talks about them in? Is there any kind of coherency to the book of James? Um, if you read James as I read James, it can kind of seem like he's writing stream of consciousness. Uh, he's just kind of blurting out whatever comes into his mind, right? So count it all as joy when you face trials. Oh yeah, by the way, if you lack wisdom, ask for some wisdom. By the way, you poor people over here, it's going to be okay for you guys. Things are going to work out in the end. By the way, um, you're not being tempted by God. Uh, only good things come from God. And, and so some have suggested that um, James kind of just goes back and forth and bounces between different ideas. Now, all of these ideas, wisdom, um, poverty, and wealth, um, temptation, and trials are going to be woven throughout the book of James. But the, the key, I think, is to try to find the common thread. I am of the persuasion that there is something that links this whole passage and the book together. In particular, in this passage, I think what links everything together is this idea of trial. So in, 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 in verse 2, as it starts out, consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And then look at verse 12. After we've talked about wisdom, after we've talked about wealth, in verse 12 he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He comes back almost to the same exact idea. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This makes me and others think that when James talks about wisdom and when James talks about wealth and poverty, he's talking about issues that perhaps his readers were facing in terms of trials, things that would have tempted them to fall away. And so when he talks about if you lack wisdom, ask God for it, and God will give it to you graciously. Um, this is a uh, type of wisdom that's needed during a trial, okay? Um, when we think of wisdom, um, we might think of a whole lot of different things. My favorite definition for wisdom is skill in the art of living. Wisdom is kind of just being good at this whole life thing, right? Being able to take the right knowledge and apply it in the right way, to get the right outcomes. Um, there's lots of wisdom literature in the scriptures. Um, and particularly when you are in a hard situation, when you're in a trial, when there's some hardship in your life, you are usually thirsting for wisdom. This is usually the point in your life when more than ever you want to know what do I need to do and how do I need to do it. And so James transitions into wisdom, and perhaps he doesn't do it so smoothly, but perhaps we can see why he might start talking about wisdom. Kind of joy when you consider trials, because after you persevere, you'll be complete. And as you're going through these hardships, he says this, if you need wisdom, if, if you need some direction about what to do and how to do it, if you, if you need to, to know how God might want to direct you through that hardship and help you persevere, ask him. And notice what he says about God. I mean, don't whitewash this. He says God is a giver. He, he's a gifter. He gives generously. And he does it without reproach. He does it to everybody. He does it without thinking. He does it without taking it back. He does it without regard to merit. If you lack wisdom, 
let yourself ask God. We find ourselves in a hardship, and James says, pray. And, and for James, the basis of prayer is the identity of God and his goodness. Why do we pray? Because he's going to answer it. Because he's going to give us wisdom. This sounds so much like Jesus, who throughout the gospel says, if you ask your heavenly father for a good gift, he wants to give it to you. More than even a good earthly father does. Jesus says, ask and it will be answered. Knock, the door will be opened. Search and you'll find. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Now, when we find ourselves in, in hardships or what James says, trials of various kinds, sicknesses, funerals, marriage troubles, financial troubles, work troubles. When we find ourselves in these various trials, oftentimes, I think we overlook certain things that God has perhaps already given us in terms of clues of how to react. Um, And so we encounter a difficult situation, and if we were to maybe just spend some time in the Gospels and going through Jesus' teachings, we'd get some clear instruction, right? If we're having a relationship problem, we should forgive that person. Even if maybe they're not deserving of that forgiveness, we should love that person. We should bless them, even if they're cursing us. We should go out of our way. We should sacrifice for that person. Um, wisdom, though, might come in with the, the how do we do those things. In what unique way can I sacrifice for this person? In what unique way can I apply the commands of Jesus? Can I stay true to what God has um, called me to do as a follower of Christ? Um, wisdom's a prized attribute in the scriptures, um, and it is uh, in James associated with life, uh, life of justice in James one twenty, uh, love in James chapter two, peace in James chapter three. Um, to ask for wisdom, Scott McKnight says, is to ask for the ability to endure with the ethic of Jesus when pressure is put on people to live otherwise. You're facing a trial or a hardship. And he says, ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. Now there is this, this kind of difficult passage here. He says, let him ask in faith without doubting. Because if someone doubts, they're like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. James grew up near the Sea of Galilee like Jesus. And so he's familiar with big stormy waves, okay? And, and someone who doubts, James says, is like that. They get pushed around by forces that they can't control. And he says that person's not going to receive anything from the Lord. They're double-minded, unstable in, in all of their ways. Now, this seems to be putting faith and doubt in, in kind of an adversary relationship. And in the past, I've argued that faith and doubt are not enemies, as we so often think of them. Um, that it's not a zero-sum game. That we don't have 80% faith and 20% doubt or 100% faith and 0% doubt, that actually faith and doubt can go hand in hand, can actually be friends. Doubt can actually drive faith. Um, That the opposite of faith actually is unbelief, is unfaith, right? To doubt something means there's at least something there worth questioning. You have at least some kind of hold on some idea. And in the scriptures, 
Faith is not propositional or intellectual. It's not just agreeing with a statement. Faith is relational. It's covenantal. Faith means to trust in somebody. Faith means to, to live in such a way that you, you trust and rely on somebody, that you show allegiance to them. And if that's the case, then perhaps to doubt is to wonder whether that person truly has your best interests at heart or knows what's best for you. And when James says, ask for wisdom, ask for ways to apply uniquely the teachings of Jesus into your life so that you can persevere through hardships, he says, you've got to have faith. You've got to be totally aligned to Jesus and committed to him. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to hear those instructions. Because you're already going to have two minds in you. You're already going to be thinking, am I really aligned with God or am I aligned with whatever else the world might be telling me? Should I really follow the commands of Christ or should I perhaps do what seems right to me or right to the world? And in this kind of double-minded sense, James says, Receiving wisdom, receiving instructions on how to skillfully apply the ethics of Jesus so that you would endure a hardship, it's, it's impossible. To get rid of doubt is, is not to pretend that you have no uncertainty on any intellectual claims. In this context, to have faith when you ask for wisdom is to say, I am totally in allegiance with God and with his son and with his kingdom. And I'm asking for wisdom and how to apply and how to persevere in the name of Jesus. He moves on into a discussion again about poverty. He says, let the lowly brother, lowly, the word here, um, I think better translated as poor. He says, let him boast in his exaltation. Um, we know that the Christians he's writing to are probably most likely jobless. They're um, being economically oppressed. They're experiencing economic injustice. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. Now, you have to make a big decision here. And the big decision is, does the word brother apply to the poor man and the rich man or just to the poor man? Brother being a term for a member of the Christian community. If brother does apply to the, the lowly and to the rich, um, then the rich is seemingly being encouraged to humble himself, despite the fact that he might have a lot of material possessions. Um, however, the grammar, the way it's put, um, the way James talks about wealthy people throughout the rest of his letter all suggests that James perhaps here does not include this, this class of wealthy people he has in mind as part of the Christian community. Now, when Jesus talks about wealthy people and James after Jesus, they say things that perhaps make us very, very, very uncomfortable as wealthy people. And we can try to whitewash it, and we can try to wiggle around in our seats, but at the end of the day, we either have to deal with it or, again, just live this double-minded kind of life. 
when we're wondering what James thinks about this rich person, I don't even think you have to read past the end of the paragraph to realize what's going on here. He says, the lowly brother, let him boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now this is irony, right? It should be the other way around. The rich person should be like, hey, I've got things great. The poor person should be the one um, crying and sad about his situation. But he says, the rich person, like a flower of grass, is going to pass away. He's alluding to Isaiah 40 here. For the sun, he says, rises with heat and withers the grass. Notice all the detail, all the phases he gives to the downfall of this flower that is a rich person. The sun rises, scorching heat, withers the grass. As the grass withers, the flower falls and the beauty perishes. And so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here's ultimately what I think James is saying here. He's saying in the midst of these various trials, know and have the perspective that one day God will put all things to right. Know that one day God will fix everything that's wrong. And in this situation, it might be economic injustice. It might be, it might be wealthy people taking advantage of poor people. Know that in, in, in the situation where someone comes down with cancer and dies, that at the end of the day, when all said and done, God is going to fix that. He's going to make it right. He's going to get rid of sickness. He's going to get rid of death. And so when we're going through these various trials, James says, have perspective. And know that the kingdom flips things upside down whether it happens now or happens in the future, but we can live with the joy of the knowledge of what will happen. And then he repeats himself, blessed is that person. Just like the Beatitudes. I mean, what a person, a follower of Christ who remains steadfast even through these trials. And when they've stood. So first it says, count it joy when you're meeting the trials. And now it's almost past tense. After you've stood after the trials, you've asked for wisdom, you've gotten perspective, you've had faith, you'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the rest of the passage, verse 13 through 18, I think is a footnote of sorts. It's kind of a pastoral response as James has been talking about Christians going through various trials. Um, It appears, as James starts to quote people, that there was some confusion about God and his relationship to the trials that the Christians were going through. Whether God um, perhaps was testing people or tempting people, what God's relationship to the evil that people experienced was. And so James offers a response um, that is both very revealing and very beautiful at the same time. He says this in verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, as if people apparently were saying this, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say I'm being tempted by God. For God himself cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God has never been accused and can never be accused of entrapment, of trying to get you to do wrong. He has your best interest at heart. He says, instead, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, brings forth the dead. Um, there's always been, for the Jewish Christian community, three kind of options to explain temptation, and then sin, and then evil. The first is to say that it comes from God. And, and you can say this in all kinds of different ways. You can say he allows it or ordains it. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of fancy theological ways to, to work out this relationship. But, but primarily, you can see a vertical relationship. Or you can say it comes from Satan or, or, or evil powers or demons. Um, and some, some other force um, than God that has bad motivations and then the third option is to say it comes from human beings themselves, from maybe free choices that they've made. Now, in the Christian tradition, um, and biblically speaking, um, most authors opt for choice two and three. James here clearly goes for verse three. He says, all these temptations, all these trials you go through are anthropological in nature. They're human-based. He says they start inside of us. They're not from God. And he mentions no evil forces here. He mentions your heart. He mentions who we are as people. Again, very similar to what Jesus says. He says it's from within our hearts that our actions flow out. And the metaphor of, of how evil plays out, I think here is both as profound as it is interesting. There's a three-phase process here. He says, what happens first for a temptation to occur is there has to be a desire. So in one's heart, there has to be a desire. That's why certain things can be tempting for some people, while the same thing might not be tempting for another person. I don't like peanut butter. So peanut butter cookie is not tempting for me. For a lot of people in the room, it might be a very tempting treat for you. And you might say, Sunday, I haven't eaten lunch yet. I'm pretty hungry because the sermon's like 50 minutes right now. But I'm kind of tempted to eat this cookie. For me, I'm not, I'm not tempted at all, right? Um, there are certain, certain things in life, you know, that I can remember seeing in the presentation in third grade and seeing um, before and after pictures of, of certain substances that humans can take. And if I were to come across that in real life, I would have no temptation to take it. Now, for somebody else, there might be a desire there. And it might be one of the, the, the most intense temptations that a human being can, can encounter, can experience. But the temptation, he says, is not external. The temptation is internal. It starts with the desire. And then what happens is that desire starts to grow. So maybe it's stealing. I, I just found out this is a big thing among, among high schoolers in, in the Sugarland area, which I don't get because they've got the money, but they, because the adrenaline rush. They're bored, so they steal. Um, so, so, so maybe it's stealing, okay? And you've got this desire, and it slowly starts to grow inside of you. The analogy is like a, a child growing inside of a womb. And eventually he says desire is going to give birth. And it gives birth to what he calls sin, an action. You, you, you take the item. You use the substance. You eat the cookie. 
And then he says, the problem is that that child doesn't just follow you around for the rest of your life. It doesn't just stay a cute little child. You don't just amass a whole bunch of little children like you're playing Pokemon Go and they're just kind of in your little, in your little capture ball, I don't know what it's called. That child starts to work itself. It starts to grow. And it gets older and older and older. And when it's adults, it brings something. And James says it's called death. Now the word used here in James is actually gives birth. And so um, there's two ways to read this. There could be two children, or it could be one child who grows up to be an adult. It could be that desire births sin, and sin then births death. Or desire births sin, and then sin, when it's fully mature, when it's an adult, brings death. Either way, the point's the same. This is why I think it's such an important paradigm shift to stop thinking about sin in legal terms as breaking a law, and instead thinking about sin in perhaps medical, natural, consequential terms. Um, Death doesn't come from sin because one day God decided it would. Death is the result of sin because that's how it works. Because as we'll see, and as James says, God is life himself. God is the source of all good. And sin, the walking away from the source of good, from the source of life, only leads you more and more and more away from good and away from life until eventually you find what you might call death. He says, don't don't imagine that this is God putting you through these various trials or tempting you. Don't imagine that he's entrapping you in some sense. These are desires that start in your own heart. He said, don't be deceived. Don't let anyone lie to you. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. God is holy and completely good. He does nothing that is not good. He's incapable of doing anything that is unloving. Every good, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is immutable, Christians say. God cannot change, which is not to say God can't act, and that God can't act in history. That is to say that God's character never changes. God will never choose to be ungood. God will always be the most supreme, self-sacrificial form of love that your brain could ever start to wrap its mind around. God will always be characterized by the face of Jesus on the cross, dying for your sins. And opposite to what our desires, temptations, sins lead to, which is death, God's nature leads to life. Of his own will, we were brought forth, that we would be born new, a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we would be this new crop, that we would have this new life. 
And not only us, but that, that we would just be the beginning. The first fruits of creatures has this implication that there's going to be more of us, that we're going to go out into the world and, and, and see more people come to know and follow Christ and then endure through these trials and then be these mature Christians who can go out and really change the world and make an impact for the kingdom of Christ. And this morning, we, we kind of get to see that. We get to see more and more the first fruits of the creatures of what God is creating in the world. As men and women and children recognize who God is, what he's done for them through the work of Jesus, and say, that's my Lord. He has my allegiance. I'll follow him. James says, things will get hard, but persevere. If you persevere, it's actually, you could consider it a good thing when things get hard. Because it's going to make you the type of follower where you don't get pushed around, where you're not easily swayed, where you're not easily distracted, where you can experience the life and the peace and the joy and the beauty that God has to offer you on a constant basis. That's the offer to you and I today. And as we witness these baptisms in just a moment, we not only get to celebrate um, the work that's being taking place in, in the lives of, of these three, three people, but we, we also get to remember the work that's being taking place in our lives, whether we're in a various kind of trial right now of our own. Um, if we're not, you're on the clock, right? And the hardships are coming. Um, and as followers of Christ, we uh, have no greater example this morning than to celebrate um, our entrance into God's new creation, um, to celebrate that happening in other people's lives, to remember that happening in our own lives, and to commit once again um, to following Christ with everything that we have. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for this time that we've had uh, this morning to, to dig into your scriptures. I pray that you would um, encourage us uh, with your words, um, I pray that you would uh, allow us to endure um, hardships, that you'd allow that endurance to um, create the maturity in us um, that we so desperately need and, and that the world needs of us and from us. I, I pray that in these hardships we would ask confidently and find wisdom from you, I pray, um, that we would know that one day all things would be made right. I pray that we would never doubt your goodness and your kindness, that we never doubt um, that your nature is, is most fully revealed on the person, the love, and the mercy of Jesus. From the cross, we see your heart for us, that you love us, that you want to lead us to life. And I pray that you give us the, the courage and the ability the strength, and the opportunity to follow you into that life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.